Hi, welcome to PH Dizzle. I'm your host, Alice Chang, and today I am interviewing Dr. Kaylee O'Keefe, who got her bachelor's in biology from Amherst College, her PhD in biology also from UNC Chapel Hill, and is currently doing a postdoc at UPenn. So you have studied biology, biology, biology. Mm -hmm. What got you interested in biology in the first place? Yeah, so I know a lot of people might have this story like, you know, growing up in the woods and getting really interested in the environment or, you know, learning about science growing up. And I, I learned science growing up too, just like anyone else. But I actually went to college and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So by that time, um, you know, I, I thought maybe I want to be a math major, but I didn't really know what that meant and what someone does with a math major. And so when I went to college, I went to Amherst and Amherst has an open curriculum, meaning that um, there's no required courses that you have to take except for when you major, you have to take the classes mm -hmm. for your major. Um, so my freshman year, I took eight classes in eight different departments because I was really soul searching, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until my spring semester uh, that I took my first college level biology course. Um, and it was with uh, a professor who would ultimately become a mentor to me. She was my, um, my thesis advisor ultimately. But at the time she was just the person in the front of the room in this class. And it was really the first time that I um, like really met a scientist in real life. It was the first time that I really saw a female scientist in real life uh, or otherwise. And uh, the first time I was learning about biology through the lens of someone who was doing it. Someone who was, you know, I think before, when I think about what I was learning in any science class, I was thinking about things that were done pretty long time ago. I wasn't learning very much about what was going on more recently. And so I kind of got like enamored with it. And then it was also very clear how passionate this professor was and it was pretty contagious. So in that class, I remember I have this very vivid memory uh, walking out of that class and calling up my mom and being like, I think I found it. Like after like day one or day two, like <laughs> I think this is, I think this is what I want. Um, but I, I didn't know until college. So you decided to do a PhD. Did you do research while you were in undergrad? I did. So kind of like piecemeal. So um, that first, so I, that spring semester of my freshman year, I wanted to kind of start doing some research if I could. I was privileged enough really. And I, I truly, now I really think volunteer internships are like a terrible idea, but I did benefit from one of them in that I lived with my parents on Long Island that summer and uh, volunteered at a microbiology lab at Hofstra University, which is in the town next to where my parents live. Um, so that was really my first flavor of research in that, um, that class that I took in the spring had a lab, but it was an ecology and evolution lab. So there wasn't that much molecular lab based work. And so when I was doing this internship, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And so I, but I also like had this feeling like I should already know this. And so I was terrible about asking questions. And so the, I remember the professor was like, oh, you know, you have to run a gel. So a gel being like, you know, you amplify DNA to, um, you know, if you're interested in looking at a specific sequence of DNA, uh, you use a process called PCR. Um, uh, to kind of amplify that fragment of DNA. And you can see how long that fragment is by visualizing it in this, in this contraption. And it involves, um, <clears throat> 
you know, pipetting really small amounts of volume into this gel where it's hard to see where, what you're doing. And I remember just being like frozen over the, I just didn't know what to do. And I didn't ask, cause I, you know, I've learned since, and I tell this to the people I work with now, ask the questions, right? Like, <laughs> um, and I do now, but at the time I didn't. And I remember the professor being like, have you done this before? And I was like, I have not. <laughs> Maybe. Um, <laughs> But yeah, my, my research in undergrad, uh, that summer was microbiology. The following summer was interning at the Smithsonian Environmental mm, Research cool. Center, which is in Maryland, uh, in a lab that studies, uh, well, at the time, really focused on blue crabs um, and studying, um, you know, kind of how, you know, doing surveys of the Chesapeake Bay where uh, the blue crab is such an important part of their economy. Uh, and then ultimately I would do an undergraduate thesis with the professor who I first had biology with uh, studying the evolution of plant mating systems. Mm. Um, yeah, so that also involved some field work, but a lot of lab work too. So I did have do research in undergrad, but a, a kind of a little bit all over the place. Okay, so then when you went to grad school, you went to UNC and how did you choose your lab and what did you study there? Yeah, so I uh, did go to UNC ultimately, but I did not go straight from undergrad to graduate school. So I, um, I when I graduated, I first worked as a field assistant for a lab at the Yale School of Public Health doing field work for a lab that studied tick-borne diseases. Mm. Um, I study tick-borne diseases now, actually, which I'll ultimately oh. about, or tick-borne parasites now, I should say, and I'll talk about the difference there. But um, I think that work is so important, but the field work for this type of work is so grueling. So <laughs> I you know, typically, typically you're looking to, um, avoid ticks, right? Like yeah, you don't I want know, them, like... um, but I was looking for them on purpose. And so uh, it involves taking a piece of corduroy cloth and dragging it through the forest and then flipping it over and picking off the tick. So the Ew. ticks kind of like grab to it. Yeah, it's really, it's really gross. But you also do this work, uh, or I was doing it at least in the summertime in Connecticut. Uh, and like, it's not the South, it's not like as hot as it can be in the United States, but Connecticut is still very humid and very hot yeah. in the summertime. And you know, you're going for ticks, so you're wearing long sleeves and long pants. So, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty grueling work, but um, I did, also work for two years at a lab that studies obesity and metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so I think as this story continues, it becomes very clear that my my experiences span like from the ecological to the biomedical. Yeah. Um, and I think it's in large part because like, I feel like I came to be interested in biology a little bit late, uh, or at least that's how I felt. I will say I don't feel that way anymore, but at the time, that's how I felt. So I had a lot of this like FOMO feeling where I was like, you know, what if I'm meant to be a biomedical researcher, but I just haven't had the opportunity to experience it yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worked in a lab that studied obesity and metabolism at the, um, at, at Tufts. Um, it's in a center called the Human uh, Nutrition Research Center on Aging. Um, and so I worked there for two years. Um, and ultimately, it was in that time that I both uh, had my what I my med school identity crisis, but also came to ultimately decide to apply to grad school. Mm. Um, and so I had this med school identity crisis because I 
like really am interested in helping people. Yeah. Uh, I like biology. Um, but, uh, you know, I was working in a lab where, you know, I didn't see that many people on any given day. And so I couldn't really see how I was helping people really. And, um, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I, maybe I just don't like science enough that I like, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And I thought about going to medical school and, um, I ultimate, so I thought about it so much that I ended up taking physics two at night. Uh, <laughs> my God, um, dedication. I was dedicated for a time because that was the one class that I needed still to apply to medical school. Oh. But I worked at a near the Tufts Medical Center. So I was often in medical school buildings. And I remember, uh, you know, as I was really kind of teasing out whether or not I wanted to apply, I remember this moment where I was at a salad bar uh, in a line to go get salad at lunch. And there were med students that were studying in front of me in line. And I like peeked over their shoulder to look at what they were studying. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, <laughs> you know, like I was like, I just like, you know, I want to help people. And there are a lot of ways to do that. But like, I don't have to go to medical school to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it really was this moment where I came to realize that like scientists can also have like, you know, it doesn't have to be like science, science, science all the time. Like you can also, you know, value equally, if not more so the community around you and that you want to help people and things like that and still be a scientist. And so um, I decided to apply to graduate school. It was graduate school really offers you the opportunity to develop an independent project. And so uh, I really that really appealed to me as someone who was, you know, a research assistant for a few years working on other people's projects, the idea of developing my own project uh, held a lot of appeal. Mm -hmm. um, and I ultimately decided to study, uh, go within the field of the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases. Oh. Um, for a lot of reasons, um, I could see how it would be societally relevant. And I was really interested in communicating with the public on what I was doing. And it kind of went back to where some of my research experiences were um, in that when we think about infection, well, when we think about infectious diseases, now we're probably thinking about COVID. <laughs> we often think more broadly about the diseases that impact humans, mm. um, but diseases impact all organisms. And so my PhD was studying um, uh, parasites that infect plants. When we think about infectious diseases, let's, let's talk about COVID. You say, I have COVID, which is caused by one pathogen, SARS-CoV-2. Um, but oftentimes, uh, things are infected by more than one thing at a time, which is also the case with plants. And so I studied uh, what happens when uh, a plant is infected by more than one parasite at a time. There's also microbes that don't cause disease that might be good for, the, for a host or even have no effect on the host. And I thought about how all these microbes that can infect the same thing interact with each other and how that affects how severely, uh, in this case, a plant, but in general, a host organism, uh, how severely they get sick how quickly diseases can spread through populations and how it affects the community. And so when I was looking for a postdoctoral position, I knew I wanted to think about going into a different system. I really enjoyed working with plants. And I, I, I actually think there is a very good chance I might go back to that ultimately. An appeal to me is that we learn all these tools, whether or not they're lab-based skills or statistical mm -hmm. skills and these questions, but they're relevant across systems. And so I was interested in kind of working on a system that is, you know, clearly very relevant for humans. Um, and so in this case, I uh, 
joined a lab. My advisors, I should say my advisor in graduate school was Charles Mitchell. My advisor now is Dustin Brisson. And, um, you know, ticks are vectors. So vectors are, you know, it might be a bug that's uh, transmitting diseases from, you know, one organism to another. And um, in this case, uh, our lab studies ticks, which is one type of vector. Um, and when we think about ticks, we often think, I feel like I keep saying like, when we think about this, we think about this, but it's more complex, which is true, but um, like mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, so there's mosquitoes too. But in ticks, when we think about ticks, we usually think about Lyme disease, right? Mm -hmm. So Lyme yes. disease is a uh, disease caused by a pathogen called Borrelia burgdorferi, um, and it's transmitted by ticks. Um, but ticks transmit a lot of different pathogens. Um, there are also many different types of ticks, but the ticks that I study, uh, which is a species called Ixodes scapularis or the black-legged tick, can transmit actually a multitude of pathogens. And so, you know, we're kind of getting at where the parallels between my PhD and postdoc are in that mm -hmm. I was interested in, you know, these kind of multi-pathogen, multi-parasite systems and how that impacts, uh, you know, the diseases that they cause. So you were talking about field work earlier and going in the summer and sweeping for ticks. So are you still doing that? Did you have to do that during grad school? Are you still doing that now? Are yeah. you just like, oh, I'm going to let an undergrad handle it? <laughs> <laughs> so in uh, grad school, I did do field work. It wasn't tick field work because I was studying plants at the time. So mm -hmm. so I, uh, I, I actually used a lot of different methods to ask the questions I was or investigate the questions that I was interested in. Sometimes it was lab based, but a lot of times it was field based. I think the Big, maybe the biggest field experiment that I had personally. There were some field experiments that I collaborated with um, other grad students in the lab, but there was a, a an experiment that I collaborated with an undergraduate, Brandon Wheeler, who we were asking what happens when a uh, microbe that's thought to be good for the plant. Um, so that the name of that would be a mutualist, right? So a mutualist is, or mutualism, is an interaction between two organisms where they both benefit from that interaction in some way. So I studied a plant called tall fescue, which is actually a grass. It's actually thought to be the most abundant plant in the Southeast during the United oh. States. And so it uh, often has this fungus that lives within it that can be a mutualist and mm. can help the plant in a lot of different ways, especially fight against herbivores. So it makes herbivores sick. And we wanted to ask how this mutualist interacts with a parasite and how it affects spread of that parasite through a population. Mm. And so to do that, we got a little innovative. So ecology, uh, you know, there, there are very uh, elegant tools that one might use. Uh, there are also kind of, you know, trying to co-opt things that have other purposes for your own purposes. In our case, uh, we uh, bought and sold out three different stores of uh, kitty pools, uh, like those round old school. Oh my gosh. Pools. Uh, we had, I think, 26 of them. So I oh, wow. had to drive this big suburban van uh -huh. to like all of these hardware stores and really just sell out all of their pools. But instead of filling them with water, um, we filled them up with soil and planted oh. these small populations of this grass. Um, and some of the populations 
had the mutualist and some of it didn't. And we watched how the parasites spread through it. So that was field work where you asked if I punted to undergrad. So he and I did that together. <laughs> um, and Brandon's actually a graduate student now. So that was field work that he and I uh, did together. So I did do field work in <laughs> graduate school. I do not do field work now. And it's not because I punt my field work to, grad <laughs> uh, to undergraduates. It is because of a collaboration. So. Um, my lab has a fairly long-standing collaboration with the New York State Department of Health, mm -hmm. uh, and they've been surveying and sampling populations of ticks throughout New York State for the last two oh, decades, all across the state. And so they have a collection of ticks. Um, and at that time, you know, over those years, they extract DNA from those ticks and store it in their freezers. So they mm -hmm. have this massive collection of tick DNA uh, more than 70,000 ticks are represented by this collection. Wow. So I don't do my field work because they just send me that DNA and I work with it. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Wow. I didn't even know they had such programs. Yeah. I guess uh, they do often for things that are like, you know, of public health concern, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. So you still get to help people. And even though your work, well, you are actually, well, you're working with, I guess more on the animal side, but it's for the purpose of helping people. So it kind of ties all together, right? I would not, would I say that? Yeah, I would say my my science isn't really like directly applied. So there's like applied science and basic mm -hmm. science. Applied science, you know, your results would have direct applications to, you know, uh, management strategies. And that may ultimately come from the work that I do, but I think it typically falls more in the basic realm. Uh, but the helping people side, uh, I've in the last few years, especially have done that more through trying to communicate my science to mm -hmm. younger audiences, as well as through teaching, which is a big passion of mine. It's always been kind of what drove me through a lot of graduate school. That's kind of where I think I've been trying to help people as much and through mentoring, you know, through yeah. undergraduates like, like Brandon and other undergraduates I've worked with through the years. Yeah, I think that's great. I think there's a whole like human element that people don't talk about in science where it's like you're in the classroom, you're mentoring other people in the lab and yeah. it's not like directly, oh, I'm like helping a patient, but there's yeah. a larger sphere of influence. Yeah, that was something that like was really challenging about the last year and a half among many other things that were mm -hmm. very challenging about the last year and a half was that for a really long time, uh, well, either undergraduates weren't at Penn at all, uh, or they were, their access to lab was really limited. Um, and so, uh, you know, I worked with an undergraduate over the last year and a half, I guess, Emma, who is now a research technician in Alabama, and wow. she was doing lab work with me and then couldn't do it. And so okay. she and I had to come up together with something she could work on remotely. So the mentoring side of things was, was I mean, for everyone, was really challenging uh, mm -hmm. when we had to go remote. So you've been in academia, you've kind of changed labs, tried different things. What's next for you? Do you want to stay and do research? Do you want to stay in the classroom and teach? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, so um, when I think very much colored by my undergraduate education at a small liberal arts college. So Amherst College is in the same town as UMass Amherst. Mm -hmm. uh, UMass Amherst is 
I think would be considered the flagship UMass school. Uh, there are many UMass campuses. It's a big state school. Amherst College is very, very small. It's the mm. smallest. It's smaller. It was smaller than my high school by like a thousand students. So my, oh my graduating gosh. class, I think, was like 450 people. Oh um, so super, super small. And so I had a, you know, I, there are many small liberal arts colleges, but I, uh, I think colored by my experiences as a student at a small liberal arts college, um, I've always been interested in teaching at one in the long term. So, or more broadly, the like, I guess, jargon term is a PUI or a primarily undergraduate institution. Oh, um, okay. And so uh, in graduate school, I, I, knowing that that was a, a goal of mine, I taught at a, a small liberal arts college in Raleigh, North Carolina, mm. which is where NC State is, which was about 30 minutes away from Chapel Hill, where UNC Chapel Hill is. I taught at Meredith College, uh, which is an all women's small liberal arts college. And so uh, I'm really interested in teaching. I've always been really interested in teaching. I'd love to teach, uh, you know, or let me correct myself. So I've always loved the idea of teaching at a primarily undergraduate institution. I think something that I'm challenging myself to do now is to explore. I think a lot of PhD programs uh, train you for an academic position, whether or not, you know, really the research intensive one, but like maybe yes. peripherally so these more kind of undergraduate institutions. There are actually many positions within academia and otherwise that, um, you know, are involved in teaching, are involved in like teaching development, faculty development, best practices in education. Oh, what I've challenged myself to do this semester is to kind of explore what those options are. Not because I, you know, uh, you know, have totally pivoted in what I want in the long term, but because I think it's important that we do this sort of information gathering. So uh, that's something that I'm doing actively right now. And it's kind of nice that you are, I mean, Penn is a bigger school in terms of like what they, it's more diversity and what they yeah. do in the research. And so I think it's a great place to explore and have the opportunity to explore those things. Um, and I guess, are you also looking outside of academia or are you just looking at like um, opportunities within academia? I think I'm still just looking within academia. And I also like, you know, I may ultimately do this kind of soul searching, if you will. Uh, and decide to do exactly the same thing I've always yeah. wanted to do. <laughs> well, it's good to know, like, otherwise you'd be like, oh, what if, you know, what if I did that, you know, right. or would I like that? So right. when you have the time, it's so good. Right. I think anyone can be a scientist, no matter what, who you are, no what, matter what identity. I or. love that. So daytime Kaylee, biology, <laughs> nighttime and weekend Kaylee, what are you doing uh, in your spare time, if you have any? Yeah, I do have it. Uh, <laughs> yes, I uh, I think it's important. We're all, you know, scientists, you know, do science, but they're also humans just like uh, anyone else. So I, you know, I always tell people that I like dread the like, what are your hobbies questions? Because I always feel like I don't have any hobbies. But yeah. uh, in grad school, I like feel like each year I was searching for a new hobby. So like one year I took guitar lessons. One year mm -hmm. uh, I got into running, discovered I hate running. So I don't get that. That's good. Yeah, but more recently, and this is something that I really, I've been, in, I was interested in before quarantine, but kind of engaged with more during quarantines. Since graduate school, really, I started going to these uh, storytelling events. So it's it's really neat. I think uh, a lot of 
folks don't know about it. I didn't know about it until I moved to North Carolina. There was this organization in North Carolina called the Monty, which would have these story slams. So you would buy a ticket and on the, when you bought the ticket, you said whether or not you were interested in telling a story. And then they would pick people's names out of a hat and they would tell, they would share their stories. Um, yeah, so um, they were usually on a certain theme, but in graduate school, I went to these events all the time. I thought mm -hmm. they were great. I never put my name in the hat. Like, <laughs> never, never something I thought, I didn't think I had anything interesting enough to share. Like, you know, I wasn't going to do it. And I was always very impressed by people's stories, not just like, and they, I should also say that they are personal narratives. So it's not like a story that they're making up. It's a story about, oh, or should be a story about themselves. And so when I moved to Philadelphia and I moved here two years ago, there's a, an organization that does that in Philadelphia too. It's called First Person Arts. And so I started going to their story slams, still not putting my name in the hat. So it ran very similarly still where you put your name in the hat as you come in, if you want to tell a story. I never did that because again, still, it still felt like that. I wasn't ready for it. And then the shutdown happened and, uh, you know, I was stuck in my house. There's another organization called Story Collider, um, which is actually a science storytelling organization. Oh, um, so they have a lot, they are kind of a multi-pronged -prong organization. They have a podcast where they share stories weekly. They often have workshops where they travel around the country and teach people about storytelling. But of course that was limited over the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. So uh, they started offering these workshops for individuals online. Um, and so I started taking storytelling classes. Um, so introduction to storytelling. I just finished a storytelling class yesterday on storytelling in the classroom, how to use humor and storytelling, things like that. Uh, and of course, a lot of these, the events that one might share stories in uh, look a little different these days. You know, maybe they're starting to enter in person, but over the last year and a half, mostly have been virtual. So I uh, have been, I did some, I did put my name in the hat at these virtual events and told some stories uh, that I worked on in these classes. Science stories could look like, let me tell you a story about me doing lab work, but, and some people do do that, but their definition of what a science story is, is very broad. And so I, uh, the one that I told, uh, most recently was, so my partner is an academic, but he's a MD PhD. So he's a doctor, a medical doctor, as well as a, a PhD, you know, kind of, um, he's a geneticist for medical school or for residency. There's this, in my opinion, terrible process where they uh, interview for all these residency programs and then have to submit a list where they rank all the programs that they like the best. Mm. And these programs submit lists where they rank all the applicants they like the best. And then some algorithm matches them and you find out all on the same day. Yeah. So it's a lot of buildup. And so I told a, a story about what it was like for me as the partner during that story. Oh. Um, and so I talked about like, you know, my science during that and that my, my partner and I were long distance for four years while I was in graduate school and he was uh, in school and grad school uh, and talked about like what that meant for me and like kind of the, the struggles of, you know, both partners being an academic, uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, is that about science explicitly? Not really, but like it has, I am a scientist and that is something that I experienced. So it is really, it is really broad. Um, but I also told a story about how I got stuck in a car in a snowstorm coming out from a job interview when I was in college, which has 
not very much to do about science at all. So, um, well, I kind of like it because, you know, you were saying, oh, I don't really have hobbies or, you know, whatever. Sometimes you think like, oh, my life's not that interesting. And then when you're forced to tell a story about it, you think of all the details surrounding that. And you're like, oh, yeah. that was like an interesting scenario I was in. Oh, I have multiple stories to share. Yeah. And we, we all have stories to tell, right? So yeah. storytelling in the classroom class that I just took was certainly focused, you know, I took it out of my interest in teaching, but it really was talking about how to be a good story listener and how to help other people uh, bring out their own stories. Um, and so we, we do really all have stories to tell. And I think through these classes, I realized that about myself, but, um, right. but yeah, so I do storytelling. We adopted a cat about a year ago. So uh, amazing. his name's Bagel. Um, and in actually in the storytelling class that I took uh, this week, one of the exercises required us to come to class ready to talk about three things that we could talk about forever. So like three mm -hmm. passions that we could talk about forever. And I felt like in the same way that I panicked under the what are your hobbies question, <laughs> I panicked under that question. So I asked my partner, I was like, what am I passionate about? And he said, teaching science and our cat bagel. <laughs> <laughs> No, just, um, just your cat bagel, but not teaching science to bagel. Not, I haven't taught science. <laughs> you <laughs> should try that. That would be a fun story. Bring it all together. All yeah. my passions in one. Um, yeah. So he, he's very, he's very mischievous. So I, I mean, it's not a hobby. I don't, but I do spend a lot of time trying hobby. to make sure he doesn't like hurt himself. <laughs> um, yeah. And then um, I really like live music. I went to my first concert in a year and a half on on Wednesday. Oh, that's um, yeah. What which kind is, of music do you like, or do you not? It does it not matter to you? Um, I, I, you know, someone asked me the other day what genre the person I saw on Wednesday is, and I think it's a mix, like maybe like folk rock, but like mm -hmm. elements of uh, reggae, and he raps in some of his songs. So it's oh, like cool. really like kind of all over the place. Yeah, it was really neat. The concert I went to on on Wednesday was of a musician who over over quarantine. Well, I so I've been listening to him since my freshman year of college. Wow. Uh, so for 13 years, I realized while I was in this concert and wow. um, he uh, over quarantine on Thursday evenings would have like a like a Facebook live mm. concerts and everyone would join in and it was like really lovely and my my partner is a doctor and so would come back from the hospital because he you know obviously still worked over that time yeah. and we would watch these concerts and the concert I went to on Wednesday was very small there are only like 25 people there so I got oh, to like wow. thank him afterwards for that sort of stuff that's amazing that's cool and hopefully you know things are opening up more and you'll be able to do more live music and see like if that specific artist see him more too. That's great. PH Dizzle. Having fun with smart people doing cool things.